0: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
1: Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or media consumption at all. It's really it's it's how the robots decided that they were going to wait human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and Three, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network, Feast Your Ears. We are in the middle of our summer fund drive and uh, would love it if you became a member. If you listen to this show, if you listen to other shows, if it's your first time tuning in, if it's your thousandth time tuning in, um, you know, it is a completely volunteer hosted organization and so there are 35 other hosts other than me and we do this every single week and so please help keep us on the air you can visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and there's lots of really cool gifts that you can get uh, if you donate there's beer koozies you can get a custom ringtone for your phone which i guess is still a thing mine generally just vibrates in my pocket but if you want a custom ringtone please donate $25 to hrn you can get a t-shirt subscription to cherry bomb magazine cheese board lunch at Roberta's so there's great prizes at all all levels of donation. Today's theme is mead, which is the world's oldest fermented beverage. Mead may be the first alcoholic beverage that I had any kind of relationship to. When I was 12, I played Dungeons and Dragons a lot. And the adventures we embarked on vicariously through our characters were of course tinged with a sort of medieval world of travelers and bandits and inns and of course the drink for our orcs and elves and wizards was mead. Um, So that was the first time I ever encountered it. It sounded kind of mystical and magical uh, and something plucked from fantasy and history at the same time. Many years later when I made my first mead, I wasn't wearing any armor or rolling dice for hit points, but I was thinking about a connection to our forebears who first took honey, that magical elixir of the bees, and figured out how to turn it into a refreshing, vitamin-rich, and stable beverage that has the added benefit of making you feel good. Mead has seen a rise in interest in the last decade or so as fermentation at home and in smaller scale commercial endeavors has picked up. And you can now buy mead at a lot of farmer's markets, better wine shops online and direct from places like Honey's, which is the tasting room connected to Enlightenment Wines, who have their... their Meadery uh, at 93 Scott Avenue here in Brooklyn. My guest today is Raphael Lyon, who's the owner and operator of both and the founder of New York Mead Day, which will bring together New York state-based meaderies uh, this coming weekend on August 5th for a meeting of the Meads with tastings, Mead University, a brewery tour at Enlightenment Wines, and a whole lot more. Thanks, Raphael, for coming to the studio.
1: Thanks, Harry. Thanks for having me.
2: So, you know, my first encounter with Mead... Like I said, was like Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. Like it appeared, I feel like in a lot of that kind of like mystical medieval stuff. What was your first time encountering mead?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um, The first time I had mead, I made it. Nice. To be honest, Uh, yeah, it's it was you know I was making cider. This was twenty years ago, so uh, and then I think you know I was I was pretty quickly like thinking through. Okay, I want to kind of get serious about this, and if you make wine strength alcohol, which mead tends to be, so you're like twelve percent, you can kind of make a lot more and less space, and it's a lot less work. <laughs> so <laughs> it
2: is certainly more bang for your buck. I mean, yeah. I started out homebrewing beers, mm-hmm. fairly low alcohol beers, so yeah. like four or five percent. And you're right; as soon as you graduate into yeah, like you wine know, and one, mead,
1: one party, and you're a, like you know you made making a like I remember I made a beer, and I'm not saying it was good. But it was good enough. <laughs> right. And, you know, we drank it in one party. Like, right. you know, you end up with two cases of beer or something. You make, you make six gallons of mead, that's going to stick around for a few months. Um, right. And so that was sort of the first move. And then the second thing that became clear to me pretty quickly was that um, it had this enormous palette to work in. Because, yeah. well, you know, for those who don't know, mead is made like uh, grape wine. It's, you know, basically the same techniques, except instead of starting with grapes, you're starting with honey or more typically honey in another kind of fruit juice or honey in an herb or herbs or some combination of all three. So, uh, you've got this wide range of, uh, fruits that you can work with and herbs. And I have a kind of herb, uh, background. So that was really fun for me. I realized I could use a lot of the locally grown plants, um, sort of incorporate them into what I was doing. And then over time, over the years, uh, mostly through reading and, and, uh, and sort of talking to anthropologists and things like that, I started to have a much deeper understanding of what the kind of real historical background is for Mead. And and it turns out to be uh, surprisingly different than a, a lot of people assume.
2: So, I mean, what what is that background? Well... What's the real background? Well, I mean, the real, the, I mean... Not the assumed it, background.
1: You know, you get a lot of, like, Kind of medieval Game of Thrones and Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, which I should remind people are both entirely fictional, right? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> exactly. it's not really a place to go looking for facts around a, like a, a, an actual beverage, which is real. So, sure, um, the yes, truth of yes, the matter: yes, the elves in my, yeah, in right. my childhood yeah, Dungeons and Dragons yeah, were not real, and and, and there
2: was the theoretical beverage they were drinking.
1: Right. So, so what is real is is that uh, pretty much practically every human culture that's been civilized has uh kept bees. Um and you know, back to the Romans, back to the Egyptians, you know, uh in the you know, where India is now and Asia, Chinese, like they all had bees. They were all making honey. And they were all making honey wine. So you will find some kind of mead pretty much in almost any civilization that you look, and that includes uh Northern Europe. Uh that includes the Vikings, but it's certainly not limited to them. And and I, I think it's really important to be very specific about this because if you put, um, you know, a, a kind of Western white idea of like what was going on in the, you know, 500s or something. If you put Northern European food culture at the center of what meat is, you're really making a mistake. And, sure. and because it's just, it really, it's not inaccurate, but it, it doesn't make any sense to put any weight there. And the truth is, is most meat is drunk by black people in Africa today. So it's it's certainly not a white beverage and and it's definitely a global beverage. So I, I like that. But it also introduces some kind of other issues which are um like if you want to be an authentic brewer in some way, right? And you want to make a I don't know, kolsch beer. That's like a real beer that's been made for a few hundred years in the same place with yep. a certain set of ingredients and it's got some parameters, has a certain kind of water, and you can kind of come to make an authentic version of that, you can kind of make a kind of a copy, sort of right. make something close, right? Yep. If you want to make an authentic mead, now you've got some real big questions. Because unlike beer, which has always been made industrially and in fab- in factories, like all the way back to Egypt, mead has been made in people's homes pretty much. And the way that uh, people might make uh, kombucha or they might make um, pickles. You know, it wasn't really a- an industrialized process. So Mead will change really radically from house to house, from when it was made, and also from where it was made. So the most authentic kind of mead that you can drink is really one that says, okay, what's growing around me? What can I use that's in this region? That's what authentic mead making is. And so uh, the meads that we make are really specific to what grows in New York State. Um, And I think that they're deeply authentic. But I also don't think any of them have been made historically, specifically, right? Right, right. right. So you're not
2: you're continuing in a tradition of making a honey-based wine mm -hmm. with flavorings, local and and, and honey that's local. Not continuing in a stylistic tradition like you would if you were brewing.
1: And I would I would also say that um, around that word flavor, uh, it's something to you know it's it's another thing that I kind of like want to kind of pull out. You wouldn't, really fla- you wouldn't say you would flavor a beer with hops, right? Hops are integral to the beer-making process, and not just because they change the flavor, but because they affect the um, bacteria, they preserve the beer, they add tannins, which help clear the beer. There's a lot going on with hops, and I think a lot of people are familiar with that. In mead, you have the same thing. So if I'm making a, a juniper, lavender, marjoram beer, a lot of those herbs are part of the... I'm sorry, mead. A lot of that is part of the mead-making process. So I don't like to – I think there's a lot of meaderies out there who sort of make a base mead, and then they do. They literally flavor it in different Uh, directions. And it's a lot like making soda or seltzer. And and I don't really think that's a great way to think about making mead. I think, like, really great mead is done when all the ingredients are sort of processed throughout the procedure and and sort of – they're not just like pushing the, the meat in a direction. They're, they're actually transforming it.
2: So, you, yeah. So, so, your process then is to ferment everything together. Typically. Towards yeah. a final
1: product. Yeah. Although, in the case of some botanicals, depending on what you're trying to extract, you might want there to be alcohol in your meat to do uh, an alcohol extraction. Yeah. Or if you want, don't want an alcohol extraction, you might want to do them earlier. So, um, it depends for sure
2: can you talk me through a little bit about the process you employ at enlightenment? Like start to finish, how Mm -hmm. long does it take for you to make a finished mead? Um, I mean, I assume some of them are aged longer than Mm -hmm. others and that kind of thing, but just in a, you know, in a very, in a very basic sense, you start with honey and where's your honey coming from?
1: Uh, our honey comes from the Finger Lakes. It's all raw honey. Um, and we're a little bit uncharacteristic of the mead industry in the sense that we are natural mead makers, uh, in the way that you might think about natural wine. So, we're typically doing spontaneous fermentation, wow, uh, and we're typically not sulfites, using sulfites. We're not filtering. A lot of meads, they'll go through, and they just do a really fine filtration at the end, uh, and we don't do that. So what we're, what we're trying to do is really not just work in this method, but also think through, like, obviously people like drinking this, and they've been drinking it for 10,000 years. So what were, what were the tools that they had? And, and what was the craft? Like, what did that look like? And in a way, you can go to places in the world where they still make mead, but you can also, there are also some fundamental constraints around alcohol that if you stick to them, you can start to work in the same kind of paths that people might have a long time ago. So, spontaneous fermentation is one of them. We ferment uh, practically all of our meads, I would say maybe 80%, uh, using the yeast that comes in with the honey. Hmm. So, uh, we don't have... It's not like we went to white labs and ordered a, quote, wild yeast. Yeah. Like, we're actually using uh, the yeast that comes in with the honey. And that means that... Um, so, just to talk about the process, we're basically... We take the we take water from the well upstate, from the original metery location. Um, and I bring that all back down to the city uh, when we're fermenting down here. And then we dilute the honey with that. We try not to heat it, because, you know, you don't want to break down the honey. Um, so... Once it's diluted, depending on the process we're using, the yeast that have been on the flowers that got carried into the hives, that are on the bees, that become go into the honey, and then I think largely live on the surface of the honey where there's a little bit of, little bit of liquid, they're sort of in suspended animation, so it takes them a long time to wake up. And you got to keep an eye on things. You don't want other stuff to grow in there. But we've been pretty lucky, uh, and eventually those yeasts will take over. And because it's a wild population, it's really variable. So you actually have hundreds of, hundreds of different kinds of yeast. And there's a lot of yeast that make cool flavors, but they'll die out at 2 or 3% alcohol. Sure. So they get a chance to do, participate. And, you know, it's basically a different, it's an ecosystem that you're sort of generating. And then eventually the yeast will eat all the sugars in the honey, and there are dozens of sugars, and they consume them in different orders, and they all have an effect on the final flavor and composition. And then eventually, uh, at some point or other, they, they, these will also typically go into wood barrel. Um, most of them, almost right away. Okay. Um, in some cases, I don't want any wood flavor, and, and I'll do them in a tank, stainless tank. But almost everything's going into wood these days. Um, and then they sit in there for about a year. Uh, we will age some on the leaves, which means that uh, the, the falling yeast will actually get to accumulate, uh, and then we'll kick that up periodically. Other ones will rack and. About After about a year, everything's sort of knit together. Then the mead will clear naturally. Um, it won't have that sort of like thin flavor that ha- comes from um, filtering out all the proteins. And then we just bottle it and we sell it.
2: Awesome. And then at Honey's, your mm-hmm. tasting room, you also yep. have it on tap,
1: correct? Right. So Enlightenment Wines Meadery, that's like our company. And then Honey's, and that's like, uh, you know, what's on those labels, and then we, when we opened up our spot in Brooklyn, uh, we also want to have a like a bar attached to it, but not just like a tasting room where you would just have mead, but rather sort of an image of a bar where the mead would be at home. Hmm. So we have a really great cocktail program by my partner, Arlie Marks, um, which use some mead in the cocktails. Sometimes they don't. Nice selection of beer, a few wines, but mostly like very carefully curated stuff that sort of we feel like are... Our mead as a kind of premium, high end natural wine could fit really well with. Yeah. And so that's what we do at Honey's, and it's right, it's, it's attached to the meter, and you can see the metery through the window. And then, yeah, uh, recently we've been putting. You know, a lot of the expense is actually putting it in a bottle. And it was driving sure. me crazy that we were, like, literally putting it in a bottle, bringing it to the front of the house, and emptying the bottle, and then putting <laughs> throwing the bottle out. Like, you know right. I mean? you have to put the label on <laughs> yeah, them, yeah, you yeah. know? It's like everything's done by hand. So that was really crazy. So we... Uh, right, so been, you don't
2: even get a chance to put it out there in the world. You're well, just doing that and moving yeah, it 25 yeah, no, feet, and yeah, then it's exactly. going to recycle. I mean, if
1: I was smart, I'd have, like, a tube go that went to the back, you yeah. know? Uh, <laughs> but kegging's pretty good. Uh, it's really low greenhouse gas use, and we're not paying for like corks and labels that go in the garbage so right. we typically like if a new meat will come out it'll go on draft and it'll probably stay there for two or three months and then we start running out and then it becomes bottle service and then eventually um you know we usually sell out and then uh you can just get it by the glass and yeah then-
2: i mean it's a you know it's a it's a fleeting beverage that is also i mean one of the things that i love about it is that you know i feel like there are places where you can get, now, nat- you know, now natural wines become mm-hmm. a big deal, and that really is a flavor of place, and same sort of thing. You get this yeast, but, you know, the, the craft beer explosion with people being nuanced, a little bit more nuanced about flavor and mm-hmm. ingredients and different kinds of hops and different flavors in there doesn't really have that same thing. And so mead, I think, is an incredible way to explore that because you do have, as you point out, I mean, bees are you know have been integral for such a long time they're integral to agriculture they're everywhere i mean they're all over this country and so the idea is you know i mean the way i think about it like you could have a small version of enlightenment wines anywhere there are honeybees in yeah, this country
1: absolutely and and that's one of the reasons why uh, mead's growing so fast so i brought just to give people a sense of the range right yeah. we make about eight or nine meads a year which is probably way too much but i guess i can't help myself so um If you were to come out now, like, we're sort of like a fashion line. So we have, like, this summer release. And the summer is, like, we've got um, a apple mead, which is, um, so these are cider apples that have been overwintered and they sort of shrink. And they're co-fermented with honey. um, And that's traditionally called a sizer. Uh, We have a black currant mead, which are black currants from the Hudson Valley. Very dry, almost like red wine. We can taste that. We've got a sparkling sour mead, so this is a co-fermentation with lactic bacteria, which we I isolated um, from, and they're not the kind of beer lactic, so it's a much more complex, much more milky flavor. Mm. Uh, it's the kind that you might use for like a yogurt. Oh wow! And uh, we can we can try some of that. It's really wonderful. It's a pet nat, which means just because if we don't, you know, we need more things to do yeah. a- after <laughs> after we make the mead, we put it in a bottle uh, with some. Uh, some residual honey. Yep, it continues to ferment in the bottle. We get bubbles. So it's bottle conditioned. Bottle yeah. conditioned. Yeah, nice. Um, well, let's. Why don't we do this? We'll we'll take a
2: short break and hear from our sponsor, which is okay. Wisconsin Cheese today. What we'll we'll pour some meads. Oh, that's good with ch- the sparkling. Is with good this with would cheddar. be great
1: with cheddar. Yeah,
2: awesome. Well, we'll we'll take a we'll take a quick listen uh, from them, and we'll get some we'll get some stuff poured, and then we'll taste.
1: Okay, sounds great.
0: Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds, or deep-fried cheese curds, Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious Stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Circhois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese. With lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenbloom. My dad, Harry Rosenbloom, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer.
2: Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom. That was my daughter, Moxie, you just heard from in that appeal for you to help us out here at Heritage Radio Network and keep us on the air. Before the break, uh, Raphael Lyon, who's my guest, if you're just joining us, uh, Raphael owns Enlightenment Wines and also the Bar Honeys, which is next to that at 93 Scott Avenue here in Brooklyn. And Enlightenment Wines is a mead meadery. And so we were just, we were about to taste some mead and then we poured it. We went to break. We were going to, I was going to taste it, but we decided we should really talk about it first, uh, for you out there listening. So, um, what we are about to taste is a new, new wine, right? This is more part of the summer release. Like yeah. So it's a year, year old. At least. You, yeah. yeah. Um, and it is a pet nat, so it's a little bit bubbly. Um, and it has, you know, it has, it, you know, you can't smell it through the radio yet. I hear that Google is working on that. Um, but it's really amazing. It smells like a pet nat wine. It has like that little bit of funkiness on the nose at the beginning. And the honey is kind of way at the back on the nose.
1: Insert sounds and sipping.
2: Hmm. Yeah. You can definitely taste the, like, for lack of a better way to describe it, like what I'd describe as like the natural mm. yeast
1: flavor. Um, yeah. It's sitting on the yeast. So that adds a little breadiness to mm-hmm. it. Hmm.
2: It is really good though, and I see what you mean. It would go really well with a sharp cheddar. Yeah, the fat in the cheddar. I think this would cut through. It's really nice.
1: It's uh, it's also fun to start thinking about lactic acid because the more I look into, like thinking through natural meat making, I realize it has a lot to do with sake production and the way that they produce. Because honey on its own is, it's got a very low pH, but doesn't really have a lot of acidity as a yep. flavor. So the vast majority of mead makers are basically adding some kind of acid at some point to acidify the the mead. Um, and it'd be nice to, like, really get away from that. And one of the ways that they do that in sake production is they actually have a, a primary fermentation, like, I don't know if you really call it fermentation exactly, but they're acidifying their rice mm-hmm. with a lactic bacteria. Sure. Um, I mean, nowadays, they don't do it that much. They just add lactic acid, but it can be done. It just slows things down. So... Learning to uh, really control that process, I think, opens up a lot of territory.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that you point out that most mead still and historically was made at home.
1: Yeah. and I think that that's really
2: you know the 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 deeper I delve and the more information I think in the last few years that people are starting to look at the microbial world and how we as humans interact with it mm-hmm. there's so much more to it I mean I think you know if you asked someone 15 20 years ago you know how was wine made or what you know what causes wine to be the way it is they would have said well the yeast eat the sugar and create alcohol right and that was kind of the end of the story mm-hmm. and you're like okay cool I get it the yeast eats the sugar which in my brain is this pile of white powder right and the yeast are these things that that are very specific, and they eat this white powder, and it turns it into alcohol, right? And it like, and you're like, oh, I get it, okay. And then, like, at least for me as a kid, you know, in the early like, you know, teenage like, dangers of alcohol stuff, it was like one beer equals one glass of wine, yeah, equals one that. shot of vodka, and so in your brain, you're like, well, okay, there's this clear. Alcohol liquid that appears in the same amount mm-hmm. appears in a four right, ounce glass sort of wine like and in a something. beer, and it's just kind of diluted. So I feel like it's it's a very dumbed down way. And now I think we're coming to understand how much more complex it is. And as you point out, especially when there are complex sugars mm. from a natural source, mm-hmm. that there are different yeasts which have different flavor profiles that consume those different sugars at different points. And then there's things like lactic acid, mm-hmm. you know, lactobacillus that come into play, and how important that is. Perhaps lowering the pH to a point that other yeasts can consume Mm -hmm. more complex sugars that couldn't be consumed if the pH was higher. Things like that,
1: right? And then they all have well. The thing about bacteria is they're really tiny, and yeasts are much bigger. They're just they're like you know ocean liners compared to like (laughs) you know like a a bicycle or something. Right, and we all
2: think of them as being microscopic, and they are. But yes, they're they're size. And so the yeasts
1: do all kinds of weird stuff, uh, under all kinds of different conditions. Also I think that another thing should be said is that when you start to study mead and honey you realize like actually most of the categories that we have for beer and wine and cider and mead now um they're pretty arbitrary and they were kind of invented you know pretty recently in the mm-hmm. in the history of human alcohol making which is the entire history of humanity right uh you know for 9000 800 years, we made all kinds of weird stuff. And in the last 200 years, it's been like, okay, grape wine just has grapes in it. Beer is just beer, just, you know, grains, and meat is just honey. But actually, like, you start looking into these recipes, all that stuff was mixed up. The beer had honey in it. The grape wine had honey in it. The You know, the the beer had grapes in it. Like, they all had herbs in them. And and almost all of them were, were preserving medicinal herbs. So when you look at yarrow and juniper and and mugwort and, um, wormwood and all the artemisias and bog myrtle, and like, you start looking at like, what did they actually put in these rosemary even, uh, into these early meads and these groots, these beers with herbs in them, they're all medicinal if they're not also psychoactive. So you start to see that, uh. Uh, history of alcohol making is really wrapped up in the history of making medicine also right. and that you don't really you can't really like divorce those two if you want to have a kind of real history of this stuff sure um, so for example like I wanted to pour you this is sort of coming off the, the winter but this is this is a mead we make that you know we kind of call them our uh, cocktail meads because we use them for cocktails
2: but also the, it has a great like plum color
1: Yeah, so this is a red bottle with a dagger on it. We call it the dagger. It's a cherry botanical mead. Uh, You're not going to drink five ounces of this. This is something you would drink in a small glass like having an amaro. It's going to be quite bitter, really herbaceous, really wonderful to smell. You sip it. Um, It's made with hemlock, yarrow, uh, fir, and chamomile. So these are all Mm. important medicinal herbs that Native Americans would have, well, not the chamomile, but would have used in New England. Right. Um, And... You know, they're preserved in the mead, and in a lot of ways the mead is a carrier for the herbs rather than the other way around. Uh, and you'll still pick up a honey nose on this, but for sure. it's not like you're here to taste the honey. And actually most meads were not made like just honey and water. They were almost always made with other herbs or fruits, and the fruits because of the acidity to bring acidity to the project, and the herbs to bring tannins because um, you need both of those for healthy fermentation.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, and then sort of the next, the next stage, I mean, of course, as a, as a vinegar maker, I of course think about
1: mead as a, like,
2: as a basis for the next step Mm -hmm. of them turning into vinegar. I know you've done some vinegar projects. You haven't released anything, have you?
1: No, we're still like sort of accumulating. It turns out I don't like throwing out, like we don't waste that much mead. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to make a lot of vinegar, I just basically have to like not drink it. Right. Uh, right. So it's usually like at the end of racking something, you know. We'll, There's a little bit left. Yeah, to, so we've yeah. got we've got some stuff. It turns out when you make natural mead, um, and I'm really encourage people who are interested in, who make mead at home or interested in natural mead making with spontaneous yeast and things like that. Um, we'll talk about the mead day later, but come and talk to me about it because I'm a huge advocate. One of the things that happens when you make mead naturally and it's not sterile is that it becomes incredibly robust, right? So when you're done, the the meat is, you know, about 12% alcohol, it's preserving itself, yep. right? And so at that point, it's actually quite hard to turn it into vinegar, even yeah. though for sure there is going to be, uh, like, acidobacter in there, because everything's had a chance to be in there. But if it was going to turn to vinegar, it would have done it six months ago. So it's sure. actually and quite... And at that high alcohol level, yeah, it's, it's very hard for acetobacter hard. to get a foothold. And also... If you're, not, if you're keeping an eye on your nu- nutrition and you're not over like, fertilizing it, which is basically adding nutrients, um, there's really very little for anything to eat. Yeah. So it was actually quite a trick for me to get it to turn into vinegar. Uh, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to turn into vinegar. On the other hand, if you buy a sterile commercial mead that's never seen in acetobacter, it's got a lot of residual sugar, it's low alcohol, uh, these kind of um, short meads or what they call session meads, those things historically would have never existed, right? So Because they don't preserve themselves. They, we can do them now because we have canning lines and everything's sterile. But you open that up, it's going to turn to vinegar pretty right. fast. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of ironic because they're made in the most sterile right. situation, <laughs> That's right? True. That's true. It's a good one. uh You know, once you start working with oak barrels, you have to kind of give up on a certain level of um, control. And you have to sort of go with the flow. It's a lot more like having a garden. You weed it. Yeah. but you don't you're not going to raise the earth and burn everything that's living in there. you yeah. just can't you know so you just have to work with the the natural ecosystem, which is I like
2: well, I mean yeah i mean i I think that's exciting right I mean yeah. if you know if you just had a if you just had a sort of catalog and you made four meads and that's all you mm-hmm. made all the time all year round that's not i mean at least for me yeah. like, and and you don't seem to be the kind of person who would find that particularly interesting
1: look you should rinse this out let's try one more sure uh, we just released a dandelion wine uh so I've been making this probably for ever. Every year I try and make it a little bit better. It's technically a dandelion mead, again, because the base is uh, honey. But it's in the tradition of dandelion wine, which is a New England tonic that people would drink, um, you know, in the spring so they wouldn't get sick. Uh, it has an incredible amount of vitamins in it. And it's as close to like an authentic American Amaro as, as we have, because it's quite bitter. Yeah. But it's really, it's really something we did in the new world.
2: So talk to me a little bit about how it's made. It's, 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 a lo- lots, it's of a lots of work. effort, right? It's I mean, lots I, of work. I mean, the, the very first time you and I ever met, I think, that the, you, were, you were just in, it was years ago. But you were in the process of just starting to collect for that year's yeah, dandelion one.
1: The thing about dandelions is, like, even though they're sort of vilified as these crazy pests, they're actually only really um, in bloom for about a week. Yeah. Like, when they're all out at once and yep. when it's efficient for you to pick them. And that where that is sort of moves north as the season progresses. So you have to kind of go hunt them. You have to find a patch that's ready when you're ready to pick. And nowadays, we need like 200 pounds a
2: year. And, and when, you're, when you say you need 200 pounds, you're talking about the, the yellow flowers. Yeah, we're just
1: picking the flowers. And we're, it's like hands and knees, coolers, boombox, days outside, yeah. picking flowers. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, we, we keep them cool. Uh, and then we bring them back down to the winery. And do you
2: have specific like fields where you know they're going to bloom and you I have specific
1: there. fields where they might bloom you know they don't always do it it's <laughs> sure. kind of confusing so i'm looking to cultivate them uh, i don't think they necessarily taste that much better because they're hard to pick but mm. um, so, so there's this, some sweetness left yeah in this so this home. is the only one we have uh that's not a dry mead i should say we didn't mention this a lot of people think meads are going to be sweet because they're made out of honey but Every alcohol starts out as a sweet thing, and, right. and including mead. And if you ferment all the sugar out, what you get is sort of the smell of honey and the flavor of a honey, and none of that sweetness. Uh, in the dandelion mead, we we leave a little residual sweetness. So this is one of the only ones that has a a sulfur preservative in it. Sure, so, to
2: kill the yeast and cause it. Yeah, to stay keep just keep sweet. it
1: from. You don't really kill the yeast; you just keep it from reproducing. So, yeah. and it's quite high alcohol. It's about fifteen percent. Okay. So, again, it's another aperitif. We serve this at Honey's over a cube of ice, and also we have a really nice cocktail with it.
2: Cool. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's delicious, and you can taste the—I mean, to me, it tastes kind of like spring.
1: Yeah. Like. I mean, it's—if you—yeah, I mean, you have to like this kind of stuff. Uh, it's not for everybody, <laughs> right. you know. It's, it's, <laughs> but as yes. um, one of the things that I've learned about the culture of winemaking—because I'm not really a trained winemaker. I didn't go to France and learn about grapes and things like that. Um, but I've noticed because we sort of caucus with beer people, there's just a lot of home brewers in the world. There's a lot less home winemakers that we interact with. Sure. And in the beer world, there there are a lot more. There's a lot more interest in the mentality is 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 a little bit more about like um, fermenting to a type, like we talked about earlier, yep. like make a good version of a porter. In the wine world, it's a lot more about character. That's why you vintage wines. That's why they age in the bottle. They change over time. And transformation is really important. Uh, so we have a black currant wine. If it tasted like blackcurrants, I would say that was a failure. It should change. It should be, ne- sure. change. It should be different than blackcurrants. Because you already have blackcurrants. The point of winemaking is to transform things right, right, into something new. Yeah. So, right, otherwise uh,
2: you could just make blackcurrant syrup and sugar, and that would preserve it. Right, wine. and, be and, and there are definitely
1: taste. mead makers out there who do that. They taste yeah. like tastes like blackcurrant syrup in a honey wine base. And so I think one of the things you want to look for in mead is is not like familiar flavors but unfamiliar flavors. Yeah. And the transformation and and I think for this it's kind of like what am I drinking? You know it yeah. tastes like dirt right. and grass. <laughs> yeah. But it's got this in deep really rich bitterness. It's almost like a chocolate. Mm-hmm. And it's you drink it like you drink a whiskey, you sip on it. It sort of fills your mouth, and then the complexity unveils itself, and it's a slow experience.
2: Okay. So this dandelion wine is from dandelions that were picked in the spring of 2017. Is that right?
1: It's so insane. I can't even get into it. It's, you have to pick them twice. Okay. Because you have to pick them in the beginning of the process, yeah. because some of the flavors that you want, you need to actually cook out. Okay. And one of the wonderful things about mead is because you're starting with water. unlike grape wine. You don't really want to be boiling your grape wine. I can boil the water and boil herbs in it, right? Oh, sure. As a base. I never thought about that. That's, and so then makes it with the honey. To yes, exactly. So that's a, that's a huge advantage and one of the reasons why herbs work really well with meat. And whereas with a grape wine, your only option really is to stick it, stick the herbs in there at the end and yeah. do an extraction. So, yeah. So if you want tannins, if you want bitterness, you know, you're typically going to heat. If you want to use bark, something like that, uh, you typically typically heat it. Um, and then, but for the top notes and stuff like that, you need to come in a year later and do a secondary infusion with fresh flowers. So every it's, it's like making, a, you know, kind of like a Solaris beer or yeah, something. You know, sure. you're, cost, you're always like halfway. You only ever have half the meat. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. So you pick, and then half goes to last year's, and half goes half to the next year. year. Right. right, okay. So it's, it. it's, wow. crazy. it's kind of a lot of yeah, yeah. work and crazy.
2: But it is fantastic. It's delicious.
1: Oh, I thank you. It. So also available, all this stuff's available online, if I will pitch for myself now. Uh, yeah, you can get them too. at enlightenmentwines.com, yep. and um, we have a, we'll ship them to you. Uh, you can also come into the bar. We do a CSA, which is really fun. So four times a year, you get uh, a box of mead, and it'll include, like, three of the new releases, so you don't have to worry about missing out, and often, like, a fourth bottle that no one else gets. So we're, do, we're re- about two and a half years ago, when we first started NHK, which is a Japanese TV station, came and interviewed me upstate and we made a mead. Oh, they're like cool. the PBS of Japan. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. kind of a big deal for people. Uh, I mean I didn't know who they were. Anyway, uh, you know, two and a half years later, mead's ready to drink. So that but we didn't make that much. So that's that'll just be for the club members. Cool. Are you
2: sending some of it to? Are you yeah, i a, a bottle to the yeah. folks at NHK. Yeah. That's yeah. really neat. You should. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to it. So let's talk about Mead Day coming Great. up uh, this Sunday. Yeah, we August away. 5th uh, is the 2018. It's the first annual. One would expect first annual uh, New York uh, Me- Mead Day. New York Mead Day, and so it's going to feature uh, Enlightenment wines and some other meadery, Salt Point Meadery. All Wise Meadery, Misto Mead, and 810 Meadworks. That's right. Um, And all, you know, it's an incredible... I'm bummed I'm going to be out of town. Mm. I wish I was going to be around because it sounds like a really... Incredible opportunity for anyone who is interested, not just in mead, if you're interested in fermentation, Mm -hmm. if you're interested in cocktails, if you're interested in drinking, Mm -hmm. if you're interested in flavors, if you're, you know, any of those things, I think it's going to be a really worthwhile event.
1: Yeah, we tried to... I mean, there's all these, like, weird festivals where you have to pay 25 bucks and then everyone gets drunk. And, like, it's the beer... Again, it's sort of this kind of beer brain thing. And and I really wanted to structure this around uh, the tastings that I've gone to for wine, where you get very small pours, but you go... You go around. It's really educational. It's an educational opportunity. So we're not charging. It's free to come. Um, You can bring the mead that you make at home. So for two hours, um, you have to RSVP, but basically you can come with your mead and you can come up to one of the tables and talk to one of the five meaderies from New York and they'll give you advice. They'll say like, well, this tastes like this. Try this. Think about this. And they'll be able to, you know, all the homemade makers can share. If you're thinking about maybe you make beer at home or you've made vinegar or grape wine or you wanna try making mead, we're gonna have a table set up for new mead makers with some literature and you can ask questions. So it's really informal, educational, and then for the rest of the day we'll have all the meaderies of New York. We'll be tasting their meads and you'll walk around with a cup and try stuff and then you can buy their bottles. Yeah, I mean, to, me, that me, stuff, to me, that's know? a
2: great opportunity. I mean, if there's anybody, yeah. anybody listening who you know has a, a wine cellar mm-hmm. and or you know is looking to, to have access to these interesting things, I mm-hmm. mean, this is probably the only place where you can buy mead from all of these meaderies. Yeah. at the same place.
1: Yeah, it's gonna right? be cool. I mean, it's the first one. We don't know. We we had a huge response. Um, hopefully, it's not sold out. But uh, if you want to RSVP, the 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 link is uh, Mead Day dot eventbright.com. Also if you go to enlightenmentwines.com, there'll be like a little button on there you can look at it. And you know, it has the whole schedule and everything, but basically the bottom line is it's like if this interests you at all, it's a really nice chance to come in, just try a bunch of stuff. It's really low pressure. No one's like selling anything really that you don't want and it's free. So uh and, and the f- bar is beautiful. So yeah, really and it's a great nice place. place to hang I mean, out. I I'm very proud of what we did there. Uh I'd also like to say that, you know, um for me, as a mead maker, it's really important that this will be the first time that... I've met some of these guys. Uh, I think they're all guys, uh, pretty much. Like, one-on-one, in different places. But we haven't had the chance to, like, get together. 810 Works is, like, all the way upstate New York, like, really far away. Uh, you know, All Wise is actually... They're opening up in Williamsburg. Um, but Dylan, who's, who runs it, he's an actor, so he's not around a lot. So I just got to see him and, like... I'm really looking forward for all of us to get together in one place and maybe hoping to, like, start a meet association so we can kind of have some sort of formal conversations about nomenclature and what are we going to call these things and let's agree on, like, you know, if we want to, like, influence legislation, it's nice to have a group together
2: absolutely and it sounds like those are things that are important and valuable i mean as as you point out you know with mead being made at home Mm -hmm. and also this kind of like fake western mystical Mm -hmm. like medieval thing surrounding mead that in the modern age that for you know for small companies that's important it's important also it's sort of like
1: look most people don't know what it is i think we're trying to define those terms ourselves right now and i think that uh You know, educating the public on what mead is or what mead can be is kind of uh, the most exciting part of the project, right? So, but it's also the most work, right? So, this is uh, sort of a step in that direction.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks, Raphael, so much for taking time out of your your busy mead making days oh, great. and <laughs> coming yeah. down here to the studio. Oh, and we to should mention
1: out. if if you didn't get enough of me, I'll be on the radio again. On That's right, Friday, Friday
2: uh, on WNYC, and actually, I guess syndicated nationally on Food Fridays. On, Food. It's uh, a
1: midday is the show now. Okay. Used to be the low paid show, but now it's Got midday, it. and uh, then they do w- Food on, Fridays on uh,
2: WNYC and on NPR. So yeah, you I'm can excited. Tune in to tune in for more. Uh, great. And you can find more at, uh, you can follow, uh, enlightenment wines on Instagram. Yep. You can check out if you enlightenment can spell wines enlightenment. Com. Yeah.
1: If you can spell enlightenment,
2: you can That's follow the us. barrier to <laughs> entry, right? Yeah. It's hard. It's hard.
1: <laughs> try to try a few times. You'll get it. <laughs> and check out
2: meadday.eventbrite.com or, uh, you know, stop by at 93 Scott Avenue and honey's is open. Normal bar hours, like five to midnight or five, five to two, five, whatever. No, no, we
1: are up late, man. On the weekends, we we're open until four. Wow. That All place right. gets crazy at night uh, yeah. Oh, and I should
2: point out, I should mention also, if you go to Honey's, you have to taste the kvass oh, yeah. if it's on tap. that is, It's back. Yeah. It is one of the best beverages I have ever had past my lips. I oh, would thanks say you that so much. Right here, yeah, right out into the world it. on the radio. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Rafa. Okay. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Harry. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today big thank you to David Tattashore, engineers this show every week. Don't forget to head over to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and support this and all the other great shows here on HRN. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at Heritage Radio network.org, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show on any of those formats if you did in fact enjoy it. You can reach me via email, harry at Kitchen.com, and you can find me on social media at The Foodballer. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you next week.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.